people ask me, you know, the moon or Mars, my answer is yes. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, space. Why are humans still going there when there's so much we need to do here on Earth? This investor, himself a space tourist, gives his view. These challenges can seem intractable because we have oftentimes too parochial of a view. And space seems to be a universal antidote to that parochialism. We'll hear from this astronaut talking to us direct from the International Space Station. So as we develop space capabilities and the space economy, that becomes a multiplier of all the technological tools that we have at our disposal. And what about life beyond the International Space Station? Should we have a permanent presence on the moon or go even further? What about a city on Mars? We're literally talking about putting a million people on another planet in an extremely hostile environment. Many of the challenges that we're going to have to solve to do that are going to also help us solve the climate issue on Earth. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Palmer at the World Economic Forum and with this look at space, why we go there and where we're going next. I really do think it could be one of the greatest adventures in human experience. This is Radio Davos. European Space Agency and participants, this is Mission Control Houston. Please call station for a voice check. Yes, this is station. I'm ready for the event. Welcome aboard the International Space Station. That's Italian astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti connecting from the International Space Station to the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos a few weeks ago. She's one of a select band of human beings who've not just blasted into space, but have spent time living and working up there. In this episode of Radio Davos, we also hear from space entrepreneurs who see human activity in space so far as just the start and who are setting their sights on the moon and Mars First, though, here's Samantha Cristoforetti speaking from space. She was interviewed at Davos by Andrew Sorkin of the New York Times and CNBC. I've never, by the way, interviewed an astronaut in space uh, before. <laughs> so I want to know what it's been like. And what's it like the second time up there? Is it different? Have you, did you bring different things with you? Are you getting better sleep? What, what is it? How, just tell us about what, what the experience is like. Uh, the second time is very different. Uh, not worse or better, but uh, different. I would say that the first time I came um, to space station as a rookie, it was quite overwhelming. Uh, you know, all the way from from launch, uh, it, it was this influx of of new experiences, new physical sensations, new skills that I had to learn. You know, like like floating in in zero g uh, and handling this uh, rather complex environment of uh, of space station and handling the work up there or up here. Um, and and I, I think. Um, if I looked back at those, especially those first days and weeks, it was all a little bit of a blur. I didn't have very clear memories. And so I was really looking forward to come up here a second time as a veteran astronaut this time and have a little bit more of both cognitive and emotional buffer to experience this a little bit more in slow motion. And it's definitely been the case. I mean, you know, the, I didn't have to learn everything from scratch. It came it came back to me fairly quickly, like riding a bicycle, I guess. Uh, and so I, I had that space in, you know, in, in, in my heart and in my mind to um observe the experience and, and really take note of details and, and hopefully also remember it better uh, for, for the future. Given the challenges that we're, we're clearly facing about inequality and climate change, and we talked about that a little bit down here before we got to you, can you tell everybody about the purpose of your mission and how, how you would tell everybody on Earth uh, how you think it's going to ultimately help resolve some of these issues? Yeah, I, I think that global 
big challenges like uh, obviously climate change and inequality uh, have are best faced when societies have at their disposals powerful tools and those tools are knowledge technologies and general uh, uh, you know strong economies and so i think that there's two ways of answering your questions i mean of course i could go and go off and tell you about all the space-based assets that monitor the earth on a daily basis and some appear by the some of those are, are free-flying satellites but some of those are here installed on the external platforms of the international space station because they benefit from the fact that they have this platform and all the power that is available and you know the data transfer um and so and and you know and, and that it was possible to install them here so I, I could go off and tell you that but i i think that one should also have a more holistic perspective and understand that space is really part of our lives, of our technological development, of our scientific advancements, ultimately of our um, you know, economic resources and the technological and scientific resources that we overall have at our disposal to tackle challenges, especially like, like climate change. So as we develop space capabilities and the space economy, that becomes a multiplier of all the technological tools that we have at our disposals to tackle climate change and, you know, all the great challenges that face humanity. What's the most exciting thing you're working on up there right now? Well, this weekend we had uh, quite an excited event. We actually had a brand new um, a space vehicle. It's called uh, Starliner. Uh, that uh, So the prototype, the, uh, the demonstration flight uh, occurred this weekend. So uh, the vehicle came knocking at our door um, in the night between Friday and Saturday, I believe. And uh, we had a pretty intense uh, short uh, docked mission in which it uh, demonstrated a number of, uh, of capabilities. And then we uh, closed the hatch uh, uh, last night and it will undock. And, and of course, we are, uh, we are all uh, confident that we will safely land to Earth um, uh, shortly after that. Um, but uh, yeah, other than that, I mean, the, there's always a lot of uh, science on board. It's always difficult to pick a favorite, but I will let just uh, see me to choose for me, like what you maybe can glance here in the camera uh, that I'm not supposed to touch, but I set up yesterday is a, a, a facility to demonstrate uh, tele-robotic operations. So once we are uh, ready to do the, the, the demonstration operations, I will actually use this, uh, um, it, it's like a, a haptic controller. So I will hold it in my hand and kind of, move my hand, but actually on the ground, I will be moving remotely the hand of a robot to perform tasks uh, um, remotely. So that, that's pretty exciting. That's uh, stuff that is uh, is going to be useful for future um, surface explorations of, of Moon and, and hopefully one day of Mars. Um, and I don't know if this audience knows this, and this is so cool, I think. Uh, she has been a great champion of women and uh, space engineers and uh, Mattel, the toy maker, has made and commissioned uh, a Barbie doll of Samantha. <laughs> and I just thought maybe you could tell us about that, how it came about. I don't know if you have one up there with you, um, but it, it, it sounds like a fact. How did that happen? Yeah, um, they have this uh, campaign, which I believe is like the Dream Gap campaign. And uh, the idea is to uh, provide young girls, really, you know, especially starting at a young age, like preschool age, with uh, role models uh, so that, you know, they don't, they keep dreaming big. 
they do not start to think already like in preschool age that some professions are maybe not suitable for them, some career paths, some, uh, you know, some disciplines that they can study um, in college, for example, are not suited for them. Yeah, that, that's what we want to prevent. You know, when I encourage women to, you know, to, to, to consider STEM careers or consider working in the space sector, I don't necessarily have an end state in mind, because I mean, it, it depends in the end on individual choices and individual freedom, which for me is sacred. But what I, I hope to help accomplish is that, you know, young, you know, girls and, and women feel that freedom. They, you know, they, they, they make those choices knowing that they are free to choose from, you know, the full palette of, of human enterprises. Uh, Samantha, you're an inspiration. Uh, we are, I'm super grateful uh, to have this conversation with you. We want to thank you for joining the World Economic Forum in Davos from space. Um, and we want to thank you. Um, Andrew Sorkin ending that conversation with astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti. Just to be clear, he was in Davos, Switzerland, here on Earth at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting a few weeks ago. Samantha was floating in zero gravity in the International Space Station in space. You can watch the whole interview on our website. Now, another person who has seen Earth from space is Dylan Taylor. He's the chief executive officer of a company called Voyager Space, which provides space infrastructure and services to companies and government agencies and he's an investor in the business of space. Last December, he was a passenger on a space flight operated by Blue Origin, the private sector company founded by Amazon boss Jeff Bezos. My colleague Nikolai Klistov, who leads space-related work here at the World Economic Forum, spoke to Dylan Taylor about the business opportunities of space, how investing there can improve life here, and he started by asking about that flight into space. The one aspect which I know many cannot wait to learn a little bit more about is, of course, your trip to space in December with Blue Origin, making you, if I'm not mistaken, the 606th person to see Earth from space out of right. about 100 billion people that ever lived on, on planet Earth. Can you share a little bit of that intellectual, but also maybe the emotional uh, aspect of that experience with us? Yeah, yeah, well, it is fascinating to think about that 606 out of 100 plus billion. Um, you know, I've always believed, uh, Nikolai, that space is a lot of things. Uh, it's a technical challenge. Uh, it's a harsh environment. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, it's an investment opportunity. Uh, it is a frontier. But first and foremost, I've always believed that space is a tool for transformation. And what specifically do I mean by that? Um, if you look at all the world's challenges, these challenges can seem intractable. And they seem intractable, I think, because we have oftentimes too, of a, too parochial of a view. And so there are very few things that, that I know in the world that exist that allow you to get a new perspective, that allow the, you know, the fish to understand they're in a fishbowl, so to speak. And space seems to be a universal uh, antidote to that parochialism, in my view. So I've always been fascinated by this notion. And if you believe that to be true, then the whole question is, how do we get more people out there? Not only, you know, forget the term, you know, rich, white, American men like myself, uh, but all different kinds of humans so that they can not only have this profound uh, effect, uh, but come back to earth and really impact their communities uh, by looking at problems in a different way. So that's always sort of been my perspective. That's why I founded Space for Humanity. That's why I'm so passionate about the work we're doing with Voyager Space, building the next generation International Space Station, uh, things of that nature. 
And I can tell you, as you mentioned, I went in December. I had very, very high expectations because I've been thinking about this my whole life. And I can promise you it is a thousand times, a million times better than I had ever even hoped. Um, it is truly a transformational experience. Uh, staunch environmentalism. You know, I was an environmentalist before I went. But this sense of urgency, the sense of stewardship um, just is so visceral and so penetrating. So we're, we're very excited about where space is headed. And I hope that, hope that 606 number uh, that you quoted will be 606,000, uh, you know, in, in the not too distant future. Why, why is the sector so important and, and, and critical for, for life as we know it today? And again, I think a lot of people don't seem to realize a lot of the benefits. And I understand the narrative, you know, billionaire escape from Earth and in all of this. Uh, hopefully I've made the, made the case that we go to space to benefit Earth. But on the technological side, uh, there really has been a massive, massive, massive impact uh, by space. I mean, pretty much every technology business plan for the last 15 years has been based on the GPS constellation in one way or another. Uh, the entire envir environmental movement uh, started, as we all know, with the first, first Earthrise images coming from space. Um, internet communication, which is about ready to be universal, uh, is enabled by space. We have had many, many, many spin-off technologies uh, from space. And you know, there's a lot of fun examples of that, like Teflon and other kind of more consumer goods. Uh, but when you think about the challenges that we have with developing technologies in space, it really forces us to think about those problems in new and unique ways. And that technology transfer back to Earth uh, is, very, is very pronounced. Uh, so I think there's all different positive benefits uh, that space has for life here on Earth. Uh, agri agriculture, we're involved in an ag tech program. Uh, Voyager is um, in the UAE currently where we're putting greenhouses on the International Space Station to develop advanced seed technology because there's no vaster desert than space, of course. And as, that, as those seeds um, uh, evolve, because they're forced to on orbit, we can take those technologies and that new seed technology and repopulate them back on Earth uh, to address food scarcity. So there's all kinds of examples uh, of that. Uh, I also think the International Space Station, symbolically, is one of the best things humans have ever done. Right. It really has shown international cooperation across many, many, many countries. Uh, so I think for all those reasons and more, space is dramatically impactful. And the other you know, thing that I tell people is everyone is in the space industry. They just don't know it yet. And by that, I mean every industry on Earth will ultimately be disrupted or impacted by space. And so um, I, I think it is a universal platform that increasingly is gonna be a very important part of our global economy. We've been, or we seemingly have been in this moment where there is new expectation of the sector over the last few decades. A lot of the great achievements have happened 50, 60 years ago. Why is this time so different now? Why are we, uh, or we at least in the sector, think we're in this inflection point? What's critical about the last 10 years and, and where we are now in the coming couple of years? It's really reusable, inexpensive, uh, reusable launch. That's really what it is. I mean, Nikolai, when you think about, let's say, New York circa 1910 or so, if you were to look at Manhattan, the tallest building was probably six or seven stories. And so you ask yourself, well, is, is that because humans didn't know how to build skyscrapers in, in 1910? And, and the answer is no, we actually did know how to build skyscrapers. 
or at least buildings taller than eight, nine stories in 1910. But what we hadn't done was we hadn't commercialized the elevator and people didn't want to walk 20 stories. In fact, the, the penthouse apartment was the less, the least expensive, right? The garden apartments were the more expensive. But of course, we commercialized the elevator and we unlocked that third dimension. And if you look at New York circa 1920s, after that happened, uh, you, would, you would see lots of buildings, 20, 30, 40 stories and, and up from there. So the very similar analogy with space. We now have uh, reusable, uh, reliable uh, access to space. So we've built the elevator and that's unlocked all these different business plans, including suborbital travel, uh, including orbital travel, right? We have uh, people on the ISS uh, today that are non-professional astronauts. In fact, I think they've undocked and are headed headed home. But that's that's really what's changed. I mean, when you think about the analogy, uh, Nikolai, it's crazy, but imagine taking an Emirates flight from Los Angeles to Dubai on an Airbus 380 and at the end of that flight, throwing the plane away, right? That's what we've been doing for 60 years. Uh, and of course, no one could, could afford to travel if that were the case. We're now engaging in reusability. That's driving the cost down, and that's really changed the industry. Let's talk about the moon. Um, what, what are the current plans? Uh, I think we, we see the name Artemis Accords um, that's thrown around, or we, see that, we know there are some challenges with that. that doesn't, it's not a global corporation. Uh, but there are plans to return to the moon. Uh, NASA has plans to put boots, um, a diverse mm -hmm. set of boots on the ground, I'll, I'll say it that way, in the coming few years. Uh, and this is a very exciting collaboration between uh, public-private entities to get there. Well, how, are you, how are you seeing the, the whole moon infrastructure develop? And what's exciting for you about that? Right. Yeah, it, it is a fascinating topic. I mean, one could be the notion of resources. So we talked about that earlier. There are actually two resources on the moon that are actually quite important to the Earth. Uh, many people aren't aware of these, perhaps, but the first is helium. Uh, the moon is abundant in helium-3. Uh, the Earth is actually running out of helium, believe it or not. Uh, it is a non-renewable resource. So I think helium-3 mining will be economically uh, compelling uh, at some point in the future. Uh, and the second is rare earth minerals. So these are neodymium and other advanced rare earth minerals that go into uh, advanced technologies and um, advanced electronics. Uh, they're actually, frankly, they're not that rare on the earth, but um, the control of those resources is very concentrated within a, within a couple of nation states. So it's prone to conflict, uh, like a lot of scarce resources can be. Uh, those resources appear to be abundant on the moon. So that would be another reason potentially to, to, to go there. Uh, but the other thing, of course, is scientific research, uh, actually having a launch pad or a, um, you know, a space-based base that's larger than the, inter than the International Space Station that would allow us to go further and deeper uh, to places like Mars and elsewhere. I think, I think the moon is quite compelling. People ask me, you know, the moon or Mars, my answer is yes. You know, I think it's both. Uh, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Um, the other thing, uh, we do have technologies now that allow you to extract oxygen uh, from moon regolith, moon soil. And that's quite important because when you think about going on a camping trip here on earth, uh, you typically wouldn't bring all your water with you, right? Especially if you're gonna stay for a while. Uh, you would bring a water filter and you would find resources 
uh, in situ to uh, to live from. And it's very much the same principle with with uh, with the moon as well. So I do think we'll be on the moon this decade. I do. I don't think it'll happen in 2024, um, but it will happen this decade. And I think that will be an important milestone for the moon. And, you know, we haven't spent too much time yet, Nikolai, talking about the power of space to inspire, right? Especially the next generation, especially STEM education, uh, especially diverse students of, of color and, and other uh, underrepresented uh, people uh, in the space industry. And imagine having, you know, lights on the moon that you could see at night uh, from a city on the moon. Um, imagine how inspiring that might be to a, to a young child, um, you know, deep somewhere in, in the back country of, of some country, uh, imagining that humans are actually living up there and that maybe they would have the day one, uh, opportunity one day to, to go themselves. Dylan Taylor, CEO of Voyager Space, talking to Nikolai Klistov of the World Economic Forum. Back to Davos now on the World Economic Forum's annual meeting, where we spoke to another space entrepreneur. Tim Ellis is CEO and co-founder of Relativity Space, a company that uses 3D printing to build rockets, technology that in theory could eventually be used to build an entire city on Mars. Relativity is 3D printing entire rockets because I have this long-term vision of building a multi-planetary future on Mars. I was inspired by watching SpaceX land rockets and dock with the International Space Station six years ago when I founded Relativity, uh, but no other company had been founded in the world that had this long-term mission of going to Mars and, and putting a million people there. So I really think it's inevitable. Somebody has to build the company that's going to create uh, infrastructure on Mars, and it's going to have to be based on 3D printing. And so Relativity is really leading that charge while uh, also building launch vehicles on Earth as our first product. Uh, so we're building the world's largest 3D printing factory. It's about a million square feet or 100,000 square meters. Uh, we're, and we're doing our first launches here in the next two months. We asked Tim Ellis how he counters criticism of grand schemes of going to Mars when there's so much to be done here on Earth to improve lives and the environment. Going to Mars is all about expanding the possibilities of human experience. Uh, it's very existential. I think it's really about why, why do anything at all? We've been living on Earth for many thousands of years, living and dying through many generations. But I do believe if we had a million people living on another planet, it would fundamentally change what it means to be a human being. Uh, it's really similar to why do art or why have sports teams uh, where you spend, at least in the U.S., you know, five, five times more money on the NFL and, and football uh, than on the space program. And so it's not really a either or for me. I think it's really just about investing in what is the future vision of humanity and what does it mean to be a human being. Um, lots of investment in space technology helps life on Earth and it really makes the world better. Um, certainly space technology is helping solve climate climate problems on a global scale because we're able to collect data and, uh, and use that data to solve those problems. And then also in space, we launched telecom satellites, which are working to connect the unconnected. So we have billions of people globally that do not actually have access to the internet and access to information. So there's a lot of intellectual capital that is left stranded and not connected uh, to this amazing knowledge database and ability to learn uh, called the internet. And so space uh, industry is really helping further that connectivity for the billions of unconnected. So what about this notion of a multiplanetary future? Why does Tim Ellis find that so attractive? 
I'm so excited about the idea of a multiplanetary future because I, I really think uh, it's about expanding the possibilities of human experience in our lifetime. Uh, if we were sitting here today and had a million people living on another planet, um, just wrap your head around what that actually means for, for being a person. Um, there's going to be Martian government, uh, there's going to be art, creativity, new ways of thinking, new innovations, um, new challenges to overcome, but I really do think it could be one of the greatest adventures uh, in uh, human experience and uh, one of the biggest innovations, you know, similar to farming and, and you know, becoming a stable society, I think being multiplanetary is going to be one of the biggest milestones in human history. Tim Ellis, CEO and founder of Relativity Space, he was speaking to my colleague in Davos, Greta Keenan. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a rating and a review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.